Hello everyone, I'm PJ, co-founder of vegan shoe brand Foncen, and this is Foncen Voices. Foncen Voices is a podcast series where we give a voice to the next generation of leaders and explorers. In each episode, our guests share everyday stories of living out their values through work and creativity, offering their own definition of sustainability and ways of thinking long-term. These interviews are insightful and empowering, inspiring reflection and action. My guest today is Saskia de Rothschild. You can find her on Twitter at Saskia underscore R-O. Saskia is a high school friend of mine from Paris and one of the most interesting and orthodox polymaths I have come across in my life. She was a photojournalist for the New York Times, writing stories from places where one rarely goes, a screenwriter and a NGO entrepreneur. Today, she's the youngest person leading a Bordeaux first growth wine business. Two years ago, she learned the ins and outs of enology or the art of designing wine before taking the helm of her family's century-old legendary vineyard, Chateau Lafitte. Her last book, The Almanac, which retraces the origins of her family's enterprise, is due to come out in November. In this interview, you will learn about how she's reshaping business and agriculture practices to define and introduce their wine into the next era. Saskia has reinvented herself in more ways than one, Her story and ambitions to steward Chateau Lafitte in a progressive fashion are a delight to listen to. Once again, you can follow her on Twitter at Saskia underscore RO. It was my pleasure to interview her at her home in Paris. So without further ado, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Saskia. So hello Saskia. Hello. How are you feeling today? Very well. Fresh? Yes. Clean? Yes. Yes. Um, you've uh, just uh, landed from uh, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, what you were doing there and uh, what led you there. Um, I was there because uh, I've been taking care of my family's wine business for the past two years. And one of uh, my roles as that is to travel around the world and tell the stories of our wines to people that are extraordinarily passionate about wine. And that's the thing I enjoy is that I always, I'm a bit reluctant to go on these trips. And once I'm there, I find these wine nerds who are super into every little detail about what the climate was for a certain vintage, what the acidity, what we do in the vines. And so it's actually really fun to talk to them and to be able to exchange with them. And it's quite fun because you have like eight or nine different wines and everyone talks about each one and how they perceive them and which one they prefer. And so it's actually quite a fun way to interact with people, to talk about this. And I meet people from very different worlds, but... At the end of the day, once they're there and they're having the wine, there's something extremely uh, fascinating about how they're like kids. And so that's what moves me in a way. It's actually sharing those moments with them where... So you, you've been raised in, uh, in the world of wine. Mm-hmm. So how was it like to... Um, maybe we can just uh, reel back and, uh, and see how 
you came to this point of like having to chat about wine at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you can tell us about how it was to, to just like run in the vineries, mm. in, the, in the vineyards. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I grew up spending a lot of time in the vineyards and since I was a little girl, I was extremely fascinated by everything that happened there and maybe the agricultural side of these incredible vines growing and being a hundred years old. And I remember my father telling me this vine is from 1922 and I couldn't believe it. And you're a kid and you see this thing that has been around for almost a hundred years and it's producing wine every year. And I remember thinking it was really cool. And then going into the cellar and asking everyone what they were doing and bothering everyone to understand. And then I also remember tasting wine since I was a little girl and my father always had us do it with our eyes closed and asked us for our opinion very early. What do you think? Which one you prefer? Do you remember this? And it's funny because the palate you have as a child has an extraordinary memory. And so I was really good when I was a kid at doing that, at tasting blind and differentiating and... So it's the, the first things was, was that, and then growing up, I always what thought was, I had a special link to that place, but I didn't really want to be doing that, and that's why I, I wanted to be a writer and, and write stories and tell the stories of people. And the, vine, the, the vineyard, was it like a place where you felt was comfortable? Yeah, extremely safe. It's yeah. a place that all throughout my life, and I remember when I was a teenager, I'd go... I'd actually, I wrote part of my novel there and it was really the place where I'd arrive and I felt at ease and at peace. And I still get that feeling today and it's, it's even now it's my workplace so it's changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. I still get that feeling where... And if you had to choose like one spot, could, could you describe that spot, like a place where you just feel... Over there? Yeah. Well, there's like a, a special run and walk I do every day with Nola and... So there's like special hill that you go to at a certain hour and it's like this beautiful light and I really like that that at every season and it's the fun thing about being in the vineyard is that you see what climate does to the vines and mm-hmm. you see the difference year after year. One year in April you already have the buds that are very out and one year they won't be. One year there's been hail so there's some parts of the vineyards that are devastated, then one year they've been frost. And so it's like a new story every year. And it's alive. Yeah. It, it makes me think of, a, of a, an exhibition of a Hockney I saw uh, uh, maybe a year ago. And they had, um, he had just a road in the, in the countryside where he used to paint mm-hmm. that uh, he filmed, mm-hmm. but just like uh, walking forward very slowly. Mm-hmm. And he walked the same path uh, each season. Mm-hmm. So you could see that same path, um, winter, spring, etc. And he just put like four screens in, in, uh, in the room. And you could see like, as if you were going into all those seasons, just like by turning your head. Like mm. that. And the effect was like insane. So you, you, you must have felt a bit like, uh, was inter- how do you say, um, intemporel. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a place that just doesn't feel time. No, and it's, it's the fun thing is that people who were doing this job 100 years ago had the same experience and the same this dependence on nature. And at the end of the day, what I learned the most from is nature. And so I, I always say we're disciples of nature. And I think it's really 
what we do and because we can do whatever we want, we can have all the technologies, all the studies, you know, who decides on what, if the wine is good or not, it's, mm -hmm. it won't be us. And what I really like about the plots, it's, we have a map that shows all the plots of Lafitte, and next to it we have a geological map that we've been doing recently because we've been able to analyze the different soil types. And you see that the map of the soil types, there's certain zones that are more granitic, gravelly, more clay, And then you see the map where the plots were drawn. And the plots were drawn by humans uh, about two centuries ago. The plots? Les, les parcelles. Okay. So the, the, the divisions of this, on this area we're going to plant Marlot, on this area we're going to plant Cabernet Sauvignon. We should do a line here to separate. And, um, and you look at the two maps and you realize that even two centuries ago, the way they designed the vineyard, And it was purely out of experience, purely mm. out of tasting the, the flavor of the grape and seeing how the vines developed, is exactly like the fault lines of the earth. Wow. So it shows you that just by knowing and experience, they, they knew what we now know because of technology. And um, how do you think people make sure we keep those types of intuitions about the earth? Because sometimes technology just makes us a bit uh, yeah. far. Well, the way, the way we do it, like when we're going to harvest the, the Lafitte, about two weeks before, we start to go into the vines every day and to taste. And we have ways to analyze the grapes. Mm -hmm. And we get, by that analysis, we get total acidity, pH, the level of potential alcohol that will be produced by sugar. We get all that data. We could decide to harvest just based on that data. Mm -hmm. But the way we decide is going into the vines and tasting the grapes and tasting them every day with the same team and saying, ah, do you think this is ready? This is not ready. And that's the key to me is that whatever you do, you need to hold the grape in your hand to see how, how um, heavy the skin is, how épais the skin is, is, what is the texture of the grape, Because, for example, if it's been very sunny, the grape will be a bit, a bit more uh, flétri, and, and that you can't get from the analysis. So I think at the end of the day, it's just that human beings have a better judgment quality than just looking at a, a graph and data. And do you think it's a generic feeling, or, or I mean, like, do you think our generation or like new people working in, in this industry are of the same? Um, opinion like uh, they really cherish that contact with the earth i hope so i really hope so and and i know it's also part of the romanticism of what we do you know it's mm -hmm. like the importance of having someone decide and the way we decide what what plot will go into lafitte is also human we're eight people around the table and we taste 59 glasses and in each of these glasses we have the result of what one plot produced. And we rate them from one to five. And then each person says their grade. And from those grades, we do a um, uh, moyenne, and then we start building Lafitte. Okay. And so it's purely judgment and perception. We put eight people because that, in a way, uh, negates the fact that it's just um, one person deciding. So mm -hmm. you, you consider if, if there's eight different individual perceptions, maybe it will have a collective value that is stronger than if it was just one person. But at the end of the day, it's eight people who decide the quality. That oh, wow. 
So it's a bit like, you know, when they say um, you're the average of your five closest people. So the wine is a bit like that. Yeah, wow. exactly. We do an average. And it's, there's fights because some people say, oh, no, I don't agree. This is wrong. And uh, does it go hardcore. Yeah, okay. sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes it does. So it's quite fun. Yeah. So how do the other dimensions of your life intersect with that like incredible job uh, um, you're doing? Well, I think it was really the key when I started to do this is how can I make this work for who I am? And that was really... Because who were who you? Who was Sasia? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's true that it's very strange for me to be doing this job, which in a way is very linked to who I am, who I was raised as and the fact that I come from a family who has made life wine all their life. And that's the only reason I could have this job. Mm-hmm. And I, I had spent the whole first part of my life doing everything to prove that I was a human being different from my family. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit schizophrenic for me to now be doing this. But it's also something you were looking forward to do, no? Or you're I don't sure? know. I don't think I, I, I don't think I knew I was going to do this. I think it just like kind of dawned on me because if I didn't do it, I don't know if anyone would have done it. And to me, it's so important to protect mm-hmm. all this because I'm passionate about it and I think it's absolutely magical. So I think it just happened kind of and it's always the key of knowing how you lead your life. Are you... Of things, do things fall on you, or are you active in, in the way you you make decisions? And I ask a lot myself about that. It, it, did I make this decision, or did this decision come to me? No. Mm-hmm. And um, so, how how do you feel your other experiences as a writer, as a photojournalist, have fed into this new uh, adventure? It definitely helps. Um, have a lot of distance with mm-hmm. things and uh, uh, the fact that I did all these things really allows me not to take things too seriously mm-hmm. it's the first part and second part is I think I'm really good at telling stories and and investigating and at the end of the day making wine is super nerdy and super investigative you have to really uh, analyze everything to learn and to get better at it and so I think that's really helpful and also taught me to ask a lot of questions mm. and uh, my team calls me the fact checker they always make fun of me because every time they give me an information I fact check it and uh, like I, is it true and I fact check it and I think that's also part of it is like the need for things to be true it's funny because you say um, you, you, you bring some nerdiness or I don't know some fact-checking, but when, when I imagine you uh, in uh, Lafitte, I think more about uh, you bringing uh, romance uh, to, the, to the mix. Yeah, I think there's also that part. It's, it's telling the stories of our wine differently and organizing, mm-hmm. and everyone talks about millennials loving experiences, and it's a bit galvaudé as a word, but at the end of the day, you know, last year it was the 150 anniversary of my family buying the vineyard and so I planned like three dinners with 15 wines and 15 people from all different worlds writers sports people actors um, manga uh, manga illustrators and put all these people around the table who were from 
30 different nationalities and had them drink wine and do it in a like, manner that I thought was fun. And I think that people really enjoyed that. It's having formats that are completely different and, and playing with the idea of how you're supposed to drink wine. So yeah. you're opening a bit yeah, the doors. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah. And also, I think there's a really strong social aspect to to what we do. You know, it's when you're at the head of a chateau, it's very paternalistic as a job because you're all the people who work for you. Uh, they've been their families have been working for you for for three generations, and so uh, there's like this party room that. Uh, There, they are in Lafitte where they're all allowed to come on weekends to use and book and marry their kids there or, or have weddings for themselves. So they're all very attached. You know, there's a lot when the grapes turn from green to red, we do a, a big uh, barbecue uh, with like the meat from the, 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 of the cows we have with the, the wood from the wood from the grapevine. And so these, all these things where people are very attached to the place. But at the same time, that paternalistic feeling and that very like old school relationship, I think is really out of date. So it's how do we work on having people uh, be empowered by their job? How do we do cycles in their job? Because at the end, they, they do the same thing for mm. 30 years. But how do you create um, a ascension and a rating and a formation program so that they can get better? And also, how do we recruit people from different kind of, of universes? Uh, two years ago, I started a program. Uh, we've been recruiting refugees to work at the estate. Mm -hmm. So it's been, for two years, it was firstly at the harvest. So we had 25 people, mostly from Sudan, Eritrea, Afghanistan. And, um, and that's about it. Um, and, um, and Syria. And at the beginning, because the people of the region are so closed and so racist, they were very angry. They said, why did you do that, Saskia? We could have only... We hire French people normally. What is this? They're going to steal our jobs. <laughs> What? There's a movie there. <laughs> yeah, they're going to steal our jobs. And I told them, look, these people work well. They fled their country. So France welcomed them. They have the right to work because they have the refugee status. And they work probably better than anyone we can find. And we have difficulty finding people. Mm -hmm. So shut up and work with them. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the three weeks of harvest, people were so happy that they were like, let's do it again next year. Oh, wow. And so this year we did it again and we're doing it in a way more constructive manner because we don't want it to just be like this uh, unqualified um, uh, workforce. The idea is we're training them in French and in viticulture on a two-month program. And then we take them for for a four-month uh, CDD, mm -hmm. then hopefully we'll be able for at least two to four of them to hire them and find them where to sleep, where houses where they can install themselves with their family. So it's like more long-term mm. um, program. Spe speaking about long-term, I just realized that you're the first person I interview that works, works in an industry that, compared to any other industry, really looks... In the long term, yeah, and and that really speaks to us because of sustainability. Because you yeah. you 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 also are taking care of a heritage that goes mm. really really far into the past, but you also have to look very far into the future. Yeah, any decision I make today, and it's funny because when you have a a vineyard, the vines age, mm. and you have a cycle of the vine aging, and you look 
let's say one vine is, has been producing a little bit less well, the decision to uproot it, to pull it out, means that you will have for at least four years nothing from that vine. Mm. And you won't know if you made a good decision until 10 years. Mm. So any decision I make today, I only will know if it was good 10 mm. years ago. And I think that's very humbling. Mm. And I, I, I really like that. And also the wines I produce today are to be drunk in 50 years. Yeah. You know, and so it's all about looking at things with a completely different spectrum. And do you think like all the chaos that's going on at the moment um, is making your job a bit more difficult than your, your father's was? The chaos, which, which chaos? Climate change, uh, just... I think it's, it's my father's job when he took over, it was in 76, his, his era was the era of technological advancements, you know, new stainless steel tanks that would allow to be the perfect temperature for the no oxidization to happen, new products that you could put in the vines to avoid mushrooms, uh, all these things. And my era is the era of going completely the other way around and stripping anything Come that back. comes between the expression of what the wine that comes from soil can be and the glass. So what would, what would be an example of something you're stripping away? But for example, we've been converting all of our vineyards to organic, and so that's been a big okay. challenge. Okay. And uh, we already have two vineyards that are converted. Lafitte is 70% organic, 9% biodynamic, and uh, 30% where we have more difficult plots that we actually are experimenting with this new kind of products that are called biocontrol, which are stimulateurs de défense naturelle, but they're not yet certified organic. It's like an immune system for the... It's like a thing that gives a message to the plant to control its immune, to help its immune system, but it's actually just uh, acid phosphoro, which is sometimes something you already find in the, in the ground. So there's like a little bit of... A, few, a lot of viticulturists who are actually wanting this to mm -hmm. be possible to be certified organic. Because there's products that are certified organic, like copper. Copper and sulfur are the only two things you can use in organic farming in vines. But copper ruins your soil and makes your soil way poorer. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people who say organic farming ruins soils and is not sustainable on the long run. Mm -hmm. So there's all these debates, you know, on what you're doing. Is it good? Is it bad? So I think we're really trying to test And we have this like cartographie du risque, which is depending on what year and what is happening this month, this month, this month, we make decisions of how we'll like work the vines. So, so do you feel your decisions are more difficult or take longer than the, the, the decision or are more just more complex than the decisions? Well, the real thing is that the owner, I, in a way, I have teams who are in the vines, but a lot of the decisions have to come from me because these decisions are very risky. Yeah, they give you a panel of choices and you have to... Yeah, yeah, because the deal I have with my shareholders now is they're like, yeah, you can experiment with uh, organic farming, with shipping out products and everything, but we would prefer if it wouldn't make us lose more than 15% of what the average that the vines would produce. Mm -hmm. And... You can imagine, except really bad years, if there's frost or if there's hail, and that's just natural, natural pro problems. But at the end of the day, 
you can't ask someone who works for you to make a decision that can really, really impact the profit of the company, mm-hmm. you know? So I have to go, sometimes they call me and they're like, can you come? Can you come work in the vines with us? And we will decide together if we have to stay in organic or if we go out of that program and actually use a phosphonate product. Mm-hmm. And because they don't want the responsibility, yeah. you know? So it's, it's really interesting. And I don't think at the time those things were happening because the products that were used 30, 40 years ago, you would put it on and it, it was produit pénétrant that would go inside mm-hmm. and you could have three weeks of rain and nothing would happen. Mm. It would be protected. So, 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 so far, you're betting that those new techniques will uh, foster not profit, but like better products. Yeah. But you can't tell right, right yet. I think it's not better products. I think it's we need to go in that direction because mm-hmm. that's just what the markets have been asking us and that's just morally and ethically what I think we should be doing, you mm-hmm. know? Because also you're not doing it would put the, I mean, your earth at peril. Exactly. Any decision we make is, our strategy is zero residue and perfect protection of our vines, the lives of the people who work in the vineyards and the people who drink our wines. Mm-hmm. Are there any other industries you can think of that have the same um, diligence in taking decisions that you've been uh, exposed to? I think the pharmaceutical industry and all of that, it's terrifying, probably. I don't know if they have a lot of diligence because the problem is all of these things are extremely profit-driven. And sometimes, and it's the reason when my father told me, you know, you're going to have to take over from me, I told him, you know, I'll be a really bad boss because I will never look at profit as my first criteria. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, no, that's perfect. I think that's what we need for the future. But at the end of the day, that's very rare and strange. Yeah. So what, of, what kind of KP, I mean, I don't know, like key indicators? Do I have? Well, it's, it's very long-term. Mm-hmm. It's not like short-term profit of having a chiffre d'affaires this year that is incredible. It's like having an image for Lafitte and for all of our wines that allows us to sell them for the next 40, 50 years, you know? Mm. So do you, did you have to invent new KPIs or new, new, new ways of looking at results? Well, no, because we look at like discounted cash flow along long, long term. That's how we do our business plans. But like it's, it's just spiritually, it's about like we do plans of like 10 year, 10 year business plan and where we would like to be, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's always saying I can take a hit this year because okay this would allow me to be better off in a few years. Oh, I guess like conversations with the, because you must have like one or two shareholders that that are like... Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. No. Um, So do you think, what are the things you're confident that you're doing right? It's very difficult. I mean, I doubt every single day. Yeah. Yeah, the, the hardest thing is, is managing people. Mm. And it's the, the fact that, like, for example, now there's like a conflict between two girls and their boss, and they're saying that she is morally har- harassing them. And so we, we sided with them and decided to ask the person to leave. And now she's like acting out, saying, you sided with them, whereas you didn't take my side of the story and we're like no we did it's just that you can't harass more than people and that's the main decision that we took this for you know Mm -hmm. and so it's really difficult because you have to make hard decisions and it's things that 
affect me profoundly. And I know when I talk with my father, he says, Saskia, you have to have more distance so you'll never like sleep at night. And it's, but it's, it's things that like, I feel extremely responsible. Mm-hmm. I think, do you think it's a good thing to feel? So I think it's extremely important to have a lot of empathy and it's really one of my main criteria when I hire teams. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the business world lacks empathy generally and it's terrible. It's really the, this industry in particular? No, 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 just in general. Yeah, okay. And um, so to me that's a, a really important criteria. So when, uh, when you feel a bit uh, over, when it's a bit too much, where, where do you look for a bit of a uh, recess, of uh, inspiration? I talk a lot with Paul, with, with my boyfriend, who is extremely good advice on all of these things. So it's really, he's the person I talk the most with. I talk a lot with my father. Um, and... Um, The recess part, I guess, is mainly like walking, being in nature a lot. Yeah, because you get the opportunity to... Uh... Yeah, and that's really important to me. And and now we're, we have a system with Paul that we actually just put in place this month where he works from home two days, two Mondays a month. And so we can, we go to the country, we spend the, the weekend in the country two weekends a month. And so I arrange my, my planning so I know that like I'm there for like five days uh, straight mm-hmm. uh, for these two weekends and it's actually really nice to be there and, and more and more I'm really comfortable there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fonsent Voices. The music intro and outro were composed and performed by An Eagle in Your Mind. This podcast was brought to you by Fonsen, a handmade vegan footwear brand founded by my wife Susie and myself PJ. Our atelier is based in East London, where our shoes are completely handcrafted by a small team of veteran artisans. We really care about making beautiful, lasting products, so each year we develop only one unique model. Our 2020 release is called the Isabel, a shoe for women inspired by tap dance and ballet. It characterizes Foncen's cultural heritage, uniting classic Parisian elegance with London's modern minimalism. Have a look on foncen.com or find us on Instagram at foncen. Take care and stay safe.